0: Welcome to OnScript's Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study/biblicalworld.
1: Hello everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver.
0: We are going to listen in this episode on an area of specialty for one of our co-hosts, Kyle Keimer, who is
1: a co-director of the Kibit El Rai Uh, archaeological project and he's
0: going to be talking about that archaeological site and its significance and some of the significant findings uh, but also his work as an archaeologist so I think you'll really enjoy this uh, episode
1: and he's going to be on with Chris McKinney so uh, enjoy this episode and thanks so much for listening thank you especially to Ed Hackey for producing this podcast um, as well as uh, all his work producing OnScript our other podcast so thank you Ed and um, the rest of the team for uh, helping make this possible. And thank you for listening. Welcome back to OnScript Biblical World. Uh, I am your host, Chris McKinney, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kyle Keimer. Um, you, you, you'll know Kyle by now, and, and you know me by now. We've been on uh, on several episodes with the passion, uh, passion week um, uh, discussions, and um, which is an area that we both love, but we actually spend most of our our, our time in a particular region, uh, the region of the Judean Shvai uh, as archaeologists working in um, working in, in in the summers and throughout the year on on the material, and so we thought today that we would uh, introduce you to a project that, that Kyle's been working on uh, for a number of years now, the site of Kirbit Er Rai, Rai, or Kirbit El Rai, or it has about three or four different names. Uh, we'll, we'll settle on one, and I'll let Kyle uh, tell you just a little bit about the site. And also, as we, um, as we get into it, we want to give you some framework of why the Judean Shevelah is so interesting. And so I'll pass it over to Kyle to kind of take over the football for a bit.
0: Yeah, thanks, Chris. Uh, yeah, so the the site of Kirbet, you know, Arai, El Rai, Erai, depending if you want to call it Hebrew or. Arabic or some sort of Anglicized Hebrew, you know, yeah, lots of different names. Basically, they all come down to meaning something like the ruin of the shepherd. And, you know, in the the springtime, we still get some shepherds coming up with their flocks and and wandering over. And so, it's it's a modern name that goes back just really into the, the late 19th century. Um, before that, we don't know what the site was called. We we have different theories. Uh, Chris and I each have our own ideas of what, what potential ancient site it could have been, and we can delve into that at some point in time. But it's a really uh, fascinating site, one that my co-directors and I have um, been really excited to, to excavate, and really they, they were the ones, so I, I've been working there with Yossi Garfinkel at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and then also Sargonor at the Israel Antiquities Authority. And they were the ones who came there originally. And and, uh, it's because Saar was doing a survey uh, in the the region and said, hey, actually, this site here has pottery that's that's the same kind of ceramic horizon as Kirit Kayafa. And many of our listeners will probably be familiar with this name. Kirit Kayafa is another smallish site in the Shvela, a bit further north from where Arai is. And it was excavated for about eight years or so. And it's this early Iron Age site. So late 11th, early 10th centuries BC, biblically speaking, we're looking at the days of Saul, David, um, the kind of beginning of the Israelite monarchy and the conflict between the Philistines and the Israelites, according to the biblical text. And it was this fantastic site that has a massive casemate fortification, two gates, uh, some sort of administrative building in the center, uh, cultic buildings, amazing cultic material, uh, an inscription, well, inscriptions um, as well. One of which is, um, depending on who you talk to, the earliest Hebrew inscription that we actually have. And so Kirbet or uh, Kayafa was just, just this um, gold um, gold mine of, of material for understanding the early Iron Age in, in the Shvelah. And so when uh, sar saw that the pottery was the same at at Arise, well, let's dig here as well and see uh, if we have kind of a, a sister site, so to speak, and, and and let's go from there. And so opened up some initial trenches, and yes, there is a, a contemporary layer uh, with Kayafa, but it turns out that the site was more extensive just preceding that in the mid to uh, late 11th centuries and probably a little bit earlier. And it's this, again, another gold mine of a site that is going to I think, really help us understand better this Iron Age 1 period, a period in the Shvela in particular that isn't all that well represented. And for the longest time, scholars thought, well, you know, we don't have a whole lot of permanent settlement. We have some smaller sites. And um, Arai is changing all of that.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. And I, I just have a couple comments just in terms of thinking about why you go to a site with a question, trying to get at a a, a question with some answers from the excavations is, is, it's a good thing to have. We should all have it, but almost always our assumptions about an archeological site end up being um, uh, incorrect or not exactly what we thought. And it, it's really fascinating because I, I, I visited both of these places when they were just being excavated. And if you look on the surface, they look pretty similar. I mean you have Kiafa that has the the walls on the surface, but who knows when they date to and um and, and it's a similar size site at, at Uri, and uh it, and it's also interesting in the first first couple of, of, of the first season it seemed like it was the same and then all of a sudden over the course of several seasons it's it it shows that one is a single-period site primarily in the Iron Age, and the other is a multi-period site in the Iron Age that was actually quite early. And so it's just a, a good uh, example of uh, the more we excavate um, in a broader area uh, across a the site, the more, we, the more we know about it. And there's so many examples of this, even in the area that we're, uh, that we're talking about here in the Judean Shvei Law. And so that's one observation to always keep in mind when we think about excavations. Another one that I, I think is, is really uh, interesting about Arai, and probably its, its chief value, as, as Kyle alluded to, uh, has to do with the, the early Iron Age stuff that, that's there. And maybe we can think about this a little bit um, in terms of the larger uh, chronology of the Southern Levant in the transition between the Late Bronze and the Iron Age one. Um, and to do that, let me just uh, give you a, a, a brief a brief overview of, of, of these periods. Late Bronze Age is from fifteen fifty to twelve hundred BC or so, um, and this is the or so problem uh, at the end of the period, uh, around twelve hundred BC. Um, there are some sites that are abandoned and destroyed, uh, such as our site, um, Tel Borna, which is all of about five miles north of Kirbit Urai, and we've talked about it on the podcast before. Uh, the site seems to have been abandoned right at the end of the 13th century, and there's many sites that this is the case, and this is connected um, with the larger collapse that's happening throughout the Mediterranean world. But then there are some sites, such as Kish, which is between... Um, us at Tel Borna and Kyle and Yossi and friends at Kirbat Arai that continues for about 50 years um, into the what we call the 12th century uh, up to maybe about 1150. And there are Canaanites living there, perhaps under Egyptian rule. We have this same kind of situation at places like Azekah, where they have a massive destruction with with um, really nice, I, I know i say that tongue-in-cheek, skeletons of, of uh, people destroyed in a, in a conquest there. We have it at Megiddo. We have it at a bunch of other places. And the question is, what do you call this? Is this Late Bronze Age continuing? Uh, is this uh, Iron 1A uh, or different designations? Is this Late Bronze Age 3? And so this is really an important um, issue to to really delve into and trying to understand this really vital transition that happens between the uh, late Bronze Age, so towards the end of the 13th century, until we get the full-flung Iron Age um, political realities that are going to exist from for sure the 11th century onward with the Philistines on the coastal plain, the emergence of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah um, in the Shehela and in the hill country, uh, and trying to understand in the early days what that would have looked like. And and so that's why something like the excavations at Kirbid Arai, the excavations at Kiafa, as well as uh, other excavations right beside it, including ours, Tel Borna, which has uh, now uh, probably a tenth century, maybe it's even a little bit earlier than that um, uh, layer. And there's also others like Tel Zeit, um, which which are in this vicinity that they, they tell us a lot about this 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 period. And they're also right on the border between the the Philistines and the emergence of uh, of Israel. And so that's um, that, that's more of a of a, a, a a bigger picture view and so just to put those chrono- chrono- chronological anchors in your head late bronze 1550 to 1200 BC iron one at least traditionally something like 1200 to 1000 BC but where exactly you draw that line is it right at 1200 or is it a little bit uh, later than that is really getting to the crux of why something like Kiribert or Kiribert uh, or Rye is is so uh, is so interesting um, and it's also why I think me and Kyle both really love working in this region is because there's so many sites to uh, to compare it to. Um, and I'll maybe pass it back to you, Kyle. Do you have any thoughts on the cr- chronological stuff?
0: Yeah, no, I think you articulated it well, Chris, that, um, you know, the, the nice thing about RI is that, you know, it does kind of fill a chronological gap and kind of helps us to connect the, the end of the Bronze Age with the beginning of the Iron Age. But then it's also significant because of of its geographic location. It is in this kind of border region, as we've understood it from, you know, the, the archaeology and and the biblical text as well, between the Philistines and the Israelites and the Canaanites are in there somewhere as well. And so, you know, it, it opens up the possibility for really understanding the way people interacted in in this time period at how things change politically, economically, socially, and we're just kind of scratching the surface with it at this point. But, um, you know, yeah, I think you're exactly right that, I mean, there's such a great potential uh, from this site for these reasons.
1: Yeah, I think another point that you alluded to that's that's really interesting is this idea of of identity and ethnicity. I mean, in, in some ways... The Philistine identity is fairly straightforward. Uh, now I know that's an overstatement because I know there's lots of discussion on this point, but it's straightforward in the sense of if they're at a place like Gath or Ekron or uh, Gaza, which we've never excavated, but Ashdod and Ashkelon, there's you know it makes sense that they're that they're Philistines. The culture is different, um, but there's always been a question. Um, in terms of the relationship between Canaanite and Israelite. Um, and I think these questions, in some ways, go back to the biblical text itself. Uh, if, if you read closely in the early texts that we have, at least the texts that are meant to portray early events, whether we're looking at something like the book of Exodus, where it talks about the mixed multitude, uh, or even in Leviticus, where you have... Uh, the Egyptian woman who's among the, the 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 tribes of Israel, or if you can think of the stories of Rahab and, and the Hivites in in the Book of Joshua, um, there, it's clear that there is ongoing intermixing between the tribes. And there's also this in, in Chronicles. You have evidence that various tribes that are clearly in their origins non-Israelite made part of Israel. And so the question is, how do we put that all together? Um, how, how do we how do we see the archaeology in, in terms of identity, and the Iron One in particular is is really where the that mixing and and matching and identity I think is is really happening You're probably continuing some into the into the Iron Two, whereas in the Iron Two you start to see the emergence of nation states like uh, like Israel and Judah, and to some extent we won 't call them nation states, but the Philistine kingdoms um, and that's why again it's it's a question of, of chronology that's interesting it's also a question of um, of ethnic identity which is which is very interesting, and um, as we both know. Uh, very filled with, um, with, with potholes in terms of trying to uh, identify, as, as the saying goes, pots with people uh, or bones with people, uh, as is often used with particularly the, the element of pig bones. Um, and, and even this has been in the news lately because there's been a discovery in Jerusalem of an entire um, uh, pig in an 8th century context in Jerusalem. And what might that say about keeping kosher laws? And so these are all kind of part and parcel of this larger discussion that Kiribit Arai is is going to give us a lot of information on.
0: Yeah, yeah, good points, Chris. And I think, you know, it's both the the interesting thing and it's easy on one hand, um, as you mentioned, with, you know, some Philistine material culture. I mean, when you see Philistine pottery, particularly Philistine one, what used to be called, Philistine monochrome or Mycenaean 3C1B, which just rolls off the tongue, you know. Uh, you know, it, It's all the same. It's basically pottery that has one color on it, and it's the first kind of phase. And the, the forms of the vessels that start showing up in the 12th century, and are associated with these sites that, according to the Bible, are occupied by Philistines, are are clearly from somewhere else. They don't they don't fit the local Canaanite ceramic tradition. They're they're something else. And so it is easy to say, okay, there's something new happening here. And you know, the best and most straightforward answer is that this represents Philistines. But you know, as you said, you know, as we move on though, it becomes murkier because pots don't always equal people. As we move through later kind of manifestations of the Philistine pottery and then you've got Canaanites who say, oh, look at that. I like bell-shaped bowls. And they want to you know, start creating their own versions. And then you've got Israelites coming in saying, oh, I would like to make something like that too. And so things yeah, blend together and you know, it, it becomes very challenging. And so this is what we're seeing at Arai, particularly in this time period, that we have clear Philistine pottery. We've got um, some monochrome, we've got the next phase, which is called bichrome. So basically that just means there's two colors on the pottery. Now it's as if they just discovered a second color and we're like, wow, let's do this. Right. And so the pottery has, has, has this, and we have a, a growing amount of this material from this time period. And then we even have the third phase of Philistine pottery, which is called, um, debased wear. And so they ultimately decide, let's just cover everything in a red slip and make it look like that. And maybe we'll paint some, some black paint on it. And, you know, so we have all three phases of this Philistine pottery, but it's mingled in with local Canaanite forms. And the interesting thing is that all of a sudden in our layer that is contemporary with Caiapha, all of those forms are replaced by, forms that we see from the hill country, which we typically identify as Judahite or or Israelite. And so there's a clear transition from the very end of the 11th century into the very very, very end of the 11th century or early 10th century, that something's different. And it seems that the, perhaps the occupants of the site have transitioned, have switched. And we, you know, in addition to the change in the nature of the pottery, we also have a big destruction layer. And so, you know, parceling everything out, what all it means, how it connects to specific people groups, how it might relate to the specific political situation is what we're, we're, you know, thinking about and trying to, to articulate because, you know the Egyptians are gone, the Canaanites are there, the Philistines have have shown up, the Israelites have shown up, and you know I, this whole thing of identity, yeah, you know, just isn't isn't clear cut as we might like to think it is, and so it's uh, fun but challenging at the same time.
1: Yeah, it's so it's so interesting. Um, we could think of it this way also: is like we we are often kind of thinking in in bichrome, you know, in in, in only two ways, you know, that there's the Israelites and and, and the Philistines. Um, and then we we, add, we added in kind of that element of the Canaanites, but if we just look at the biblical text, even in this area, there's other folks around. I mean, there's the the Girgashites and the um, and the the uh, the Gittai, I mean, there's there's all of these different um, Amalekites and so on um, that are in the area, and uh, there's questions about their of course their historicity, but the fact that you have this mul- multiple um, peoples, multiples of peoples living in this area means that there's all kinds of different scenarios that, um, that this, that this particular site or any of these sites could have undergone, uh, in terms of a destruction. Now, uh, as we often like to do, we often, of course, like to have a nice historical text that we can then connect with a destruction layer. And of course, um, the big one for around this time frame is the is the destruction of of Shishak, which came into the area. But I think the one that you're alluding to is a little bit earlier than 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 this destruction. Shishak would have come. Um, I always like to call the Shishak uh, attack the Shishank Redemption um, <laughs> because uh, his Egyptian name is Shishank, and at least according to how you read the the text in the Book of Kings. Um, Solomon uh, and him had a little bit of a a squabble, you might say, uh, and he comes back to reclaim what's his, so it's it's the Shashank Redemption, and that happens about 925 uh, BC, but this is, this destruction um, that's there seems to be a bit earlier, so who was living there? That's question one. Who killed them? Uh, uh, question number two. And then who lived in their place? Question number three. I mean, it's 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 uh, very uh, complicated, and uh, and it's fun. But I, mean, I can it, answer
0: each and every can, one of those questions can, easily. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, right, definitely, uh, definitely. Um, so anyway, it's 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 fascinating to kind of delve into some of these uh, some of these questions. Um, and, and And also talk about them in terms of their identity,
0: okay, so yeah, with, just, one thing I, can, if I just add on to that, you know it, we have to think too you know when we th- 're thinking about destructions, um, what we mean kind of archaeologically speaking what we 're looking for are, are burn layers because you can have different kinds of destructions, but what we have at our site, and what typically archaeologists love in a very kind of morbid fashion, is a giant burn layer where everyone, you get the snapshot of time. And unfortunately, people probably died in that and the materials left there they didn't have a chance to take it and it's it's great for us because we have a better sense of of you know how they use space and what everything was and perhaps even you know the nature of their health if we have skeletons and so from an archaeological perspective it's very important to find these kind of layers because if we don't have them people will typically pick up their stuff and move away and take it and so it's a lot more difficult to actually develop a chronology and establish kind of anchor points for for putting everything together
1: yeah and and also um and also related to this is this is really significant from a um from a historical perspective not just because of the things we've been addressing in terms of identity and and chronology in the bigger picture, but this is precisely the discussion point that back in the mid to late 90s, uh, Israel Finkelstein was writing about in the initial um, kind of forays on low chronology versus high chronology. It specifically was tying the uh, ceramics uh, that had been found at a number of different sites that were either Canaanite or Israelite, local generic stuff, to the emergence of new um, new types of pottery, which we call philistine whether it 's um, Philistine one, two or three mycenaean a uh, three c bichrome or debased and so that whole debate is really tied to the emergence of these uh, of these uh, these new types of forms which are which are, which are really unique and so excavating in a site like this, getting a better date through carbon fourteen through other means is so crucial for uh, not just um, you know the question of identity but this larger question of how do we actually date the Philistine pottery? And then in relationship to that, how do we date the other forms which are used to date uh, particular layers uh, at sites like Lachish and at sites like Asafi and, and so on, and even Jerusalem. So it, it's, it's, it's all, that's why all of sites that are in this period are so important because they tell us not just about that particular site, uh, the ethnicity, the, the, the chronology of that site, but the larger, the larger chronology as well. Now, one question for you, Kyle. Uh, actually, uh, kind of maybe two related questions. Um, and the first of those questions is, uh, what do you think the site was? And I know we'll have more discussion on that later. But in relationship to that question, I understand that there's a very nice new discovery there uh, and with an inscription, and I think it relates to this 11th century period that you're talking about. Can you tell us a little bit about that uh, and what that tells us perhaps about uh, the occupants of the site and how we make sense of the evidence as limited as it may be.
0: Yeah, sure. Good questions. I will try my best to answer them. So let me let me step back and give a bigger picture to kind of contextualize everything because I think it's, it's necessary if, to, to answer these. So you've already kind of laid out the nice historical context and as we move from the end of the Bronze Age into the Iron Age this is really a transition from Egyptian domination over local Canaanite kingdoms to kind of a breakdown of that system and a replacement with new new entities. And ultimately, we're going to see arising yeah, kind of the Philistine um, kingdoms, if you want to call them that, and the Israelite slash Judahite kingdom as well. And it's within this transition from in what we typically call imperial control, Egyptian imperial control uh, in the new kingdom, to local kingdoms that... Kiribati is, is located. That's when it's mostly occupied. And so w- when w- we first started digging right, we had this great layer that went with Kayafa, so very late 11th early 10th century, but then as I mentioned there's an earlier, more substantial sediment from the 11th century that is, that is there that was destroyed as well and in some of our areas in our, uh, the central area of the site where some of the big big architecture is, we actually have another earlier Iron Age level underneath of that that also has been destroyed. And below that, there's a late bronze level. And so we actually have at uh, Kirid Arai a sequence of occupation spanning the kind of Egyptian control, or at least the end of the, the late Bronze Age, into the Iron Age and the kind of nascent stages of these local kingdoms. And what makes this even more important and exciting than the fact that we have this sequence is that very few other sites in the region have this same sequence. so Quiche, which is only four four miles away or about four kilometers away, so about you know two and a half miles or so. It, it you know it's the big site. It's the you know the main site in the Bronze Age for you know the preceding thousand years. It's the big site in the Iron Age for the next you know five hundred years, but in the Iron Age one, it's completely abandoned. It's destroyed in the 12th century at some point in time, abandoned for the next 150 years, and then it's reoccupied. And it's in this gap of occupation at Lachish that Arai rises and is, is. I mean, this is when we have it occupied. And based on the nature of the settlement, as we, we know it today, with these kind of monumental buildings in the, in the center of the site, surrounded by at least a ring of houses that are of substantial kind of Canaanite courtyard um, house houses. This seems to be the um, main site in the region. So it transitions kind of the political, economic, social epicenter of the southern Shvela, shifts from Lachish after it's destroyed to Kibbut Aray. And then once Kibbut Aray is destroyed, it shifts back to Lachish. And so we're filling in this, this big picture here um, through the occupational sequence at Arai. At and so What do i think the site is i think you know whether we want to call it a you know a city or a a town or something it's you know it's got substantial buildings in the middle of the site one of in the 11th century it's clearly a cultic building and we've got cultic vessels you've got food uh, food, evidence of bones thousands and thousands of bones so probably some sort of ritual feasting of some sort or you know just giant barbecue we don't don't really know but everything comes together to suggest it's probably cultic of some sort and we have um you know we had a gold ring we had a a fancy uh duck duck seal it's basically the shape of a little duck uh, from um that you find parallels from egypt in earlier periods so everything says that this building is is Big, it had lots of people doing something there, and it's important. And then around that, you have these large houses, one of which had a cache of flints buried in the floor, a, a cache of 1500, over 1,500 flints. This is the largest cache of flints ever discovered in any time period in, in the Levant, uh, perhaps even in the Near East. I haven't looked as you know beyond the Levant at this point. And so something clearly you know, is happening here at this site in the 11th century. And it really makes a lot of sense, because if you step back and look at the geography, this is kind of the connecting point between the Shvela, the coast... And also the Negev from the south. And so as you have trade coming from the southeast, from Arabia, from uh, the copper mines in the Arava in a slightly, slightly later period, they're coming up to the coast. They're proceeding north then up through what uh, we call the coastal plain and everything would be funneled right past our site. Same way it was with Lachish before that, same way it was with Lachish after this. And so our site not only has this this location on the key trade routes kind of running north and south, but it also offers that connection between west and east from the Mediterranean coast up into the mountains, in particular the site of Hebron which is, is uh, kind of east-southeast of where we are up in the mountains. So geographically it's it's this center point and everything we're finding there suggests this is where um the seat of local power if you will transition to and again whether you call it a city or something else you know i'm not so big these are all modern terms that we kind of apply to specific sites um, the same way that late bronze age iron age these are all terms that we've developed to try and understand and classify things. Uh, it's, it's the site in the region though, is what I would say. And then I, I just kept talking and talking. What was your second question? I forgot. I'll I'll, I'll come back to it. Uh, I'll I'll, I'll
1: mention it again. Uh, but I, I just wanted to also, um, kind of build off on that. Um, one of the things that I find, um, not necessarily troubling, but something that is Uh, something I think that often needs to be addressed um, uh, among archaeologists, and you won't have any disagreement with this because of your historical geography background, is the knowledge that when we're excavating at a particular site, there's often a lot of other sites in the vicinity. And so I wouldn't have any disagreement with the idea that Lachish and Hebron and some of these were, were central sites. But the question becomes, okay... Um, this is the knowledge that we have in 2021. Uh, what happens when we uh, when we excavate at Tel Goded or at you know these places that are that are right beside it? And it turns out that they also have you know the and so I, I'm not disagreeing with your your um, conclusions, but I do find that archaeologists in general and, and I'm not putting you in this, but archaeologists in general often um, only think about their site as the only site in the world that's the most important. Um, and, and even, you know, there's many stories we could, we could go into, but we won't. Um, but, and I'm not saying that you're doing that. I'm just saying that that's something that we need to always kind of keep in the back of our head, that right next door, uh, just as you've kind of illustrated with, we thought it was this, and it turns out being that it's 11th century instead of 10th century, that there's that there's other sites that are just waiting to be discovered, which in my opinion is is fantastic news because this means that, there will always be more to discover and more to nuance as we excavate uh, more and more. And so my question was, okay, in light of that, in light of that great context you've given us, do we know what the name of the site is and the relationship to the recently discovered uh, inscription? Is there a relationship between the name of the site, its possible identity? You've, you've talked about... Um, what it may, what it may be in terms of a um, classification, maybe a city, maybe a local power in the region um, in the 11th century. Um, But is it, does it have an ancient name that we know of? And I know we'll have a whole discussion about this on a future episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, We disagree, Uh, but we're still (laughs) friends. We we Um, we do,
0: but but it's okay that you're wrong. It's, you know, everybody, nobody's perfect. It's it's fine.
1: Nobody always has to be right. Um, and, And then relation relating that to the, to the, the inscription that was recently published?
0: Yeah. So the, uh, the inscription we we have is three small fragments of a, of a jar and we read it as saying Yerub Baal. So Jerubbaal, which if you're familiar with the biblical text is an alternate name for a pretty famous character by the name of Gideon in the book of Judges. And so, you know, if you go through and, you know, there's any number of textual issues and chronological issues with many of the biblical texts, but, you know, people would put the, the book of Judges, the events recorded there, that context in this same time period, in this kind of Iron Age one period, and... You know the fact that we found an inscription with this name—it it just fits. It, so it's—it's it's not as if, um, you know, the the Gideon narrative or some of the specific details are are out of place. Um, and this is one of the things that archaeology does a really good job of. It, It's—it it doesn't necessarily prove the Bible one way or the other because so many of the the kind of truth claims in the biblical text are are of a different nature. And so it's, they're not a, an archaeological question per se, but what we're finding uh, fits the context of, of what the picture looks like in, in the biblical text. And it's always always um, fun to see that kind of um, um, supported or, or kind of built up as we, we dig more and more. And so the fact that you have this Jeroboam inscription, fits i mean it's it's basically I would say a canaanite name, and again you you look in judges you look in joshua and you're you're seeing the blending in certain pockets of of quote unquote Israel with Canaanites and with other groups, and so it's it's not out of place and um, you know, again, it, it comes to the specific nature. When you fit the name with the material culture that we have there, you know, the forms look Canaanite. The the material that we uh, that we classify as Canaanite, everything kind of gels together. Even though there's some Philistine material contemporary with it, it you know kind of makes sense. And so, um, is it Gideon of the the Bible? Well, I, I personally don't think that it. It is, um, and it, this is a geographical issue because. Was is a multiple uh, multiple prong issue. I mean, on the one hand, we can't be 100% certain that it's not, but I would say it's very unlikely in this instance because the narrative about Gideon takes place much farther north, and so it's not situated anywhere near the Shvelah. It's up in the kind of northern extent of the Sumerian hills and in the Jezreel Valley. So it's a, a long distance away, and to travel to the Shvelah would have been a multi-day journey in antiquity. You don't just jump on an Egged bus and get there, right?
1: Nice and, reference. Yes. Yeah. There we go. For
0: those uh, who love riding egged buses in Israel, that's for prefer, those who don't know this. Yeah. I prefer super bus. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> oh gosh, I got yeah you know, too excited about egged buses now I forgot what I was gonna say. <laughs> you were talking um, yeah. about
1: Jerubbaal yeah, and Jerubbaal, the geography. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. So the geography, the ge- the geography doesn't really fit. So you know the odds are that you know somebody else has this name and. You know, in the same way that at Kirbet Kayafo to the north, uh, roughly contemporary, slightly slightly after this period, you have the inscription of, of Ishbaal, which we know is, is also one of Saul, the king of Israel's son's uh, name or grandson. I forget. Son. son. One, yeah, it's his son. son Your yeah, youngest
1: son. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, again, it doesn't, you know, it, is that Saul's son who comes to kind of, well, I mean, there's, you know, no way to pin it down 100% one way or the other, but, you know, there's no reason to think that it necessarily is. I mean, these are names the same way that there are probably more than one person named Chris. I, probably two, three people maybe have that name, you know, I don't <laughs> there's know. There's no but... one like me. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's fair. So, <laughs> um, but, it, but again, everything kind of fits in this context. The name is right. It, it fits with the material culture. It sheds light on the biblical narrative as well that says, you know, this is the context out of which it comes. And there are people who focus their, their careers on looking at what we call the onomastic kind of evidence. And that is the, the names because names are very important and they often will give you clues as to which deity is worshiped or what kind of nationality or affiliation somebody has, or perhaps what region they come from. And so uh, th- it's always important to consider the name, um, and they, they always have meanings as well.
1: Right, right. And I think that's that's really very interesting. And anytime we have this type of discovery, it's it's so fascinating, and it brings to bear so many different topics, like religion, you know, Baal right there, like the names of and how they change over time. But what, in some ways, we could ask the question: What does Baal even mean? Um, We know that, of course, it's a name of a of of a chief deity of the Canaanites. We know a lot of material we've talked about in the podcast before about Ugarit with the Baalu cycle. Um, So we know a lot about the if you want to call it theology or the myth or origins um, and function of of Baal as as a storm deity throughout Canaan, and then by extension. You could connect him with other uh, storm deities, Adad in Mesopotamia, Hadad, Ramon, or Hadad in, in Syria, and so on. Um, so we know that this is a, a, something that's, that's throughout the region and something that's quite common. Um, but what's also interesting is, is that the name itself isn't really his name. In fact, Baal is more like uh, when we read in our Hebrew Bible Old Testament, where we read Elohim. Um because the name of the god of the, of of Israel is yahweh his probably his personal name um of baal is 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 heydad and his his title is Baal which means lord or husband uh, as the as this is this main entity and that's interesting because oftentimes in the in the bible we have the word Baal used as Lord or used as husband for, for regular people. It even appears in uh, some toponyms um, that have the name Baalat, um, uh, which is another name for uh, Kiryat Yerim, uh, or Kiryat Baal, it's sometimes called. And there's a real question, is it is it the city of uh, Baal-Hadad, you know, the, the, the Syrian uh, and Canaanite storm god? Or is it saying just, you know, the city of the Lord? Uh, reflecting um, reflecting a Yahweh, and so there, or, or is it both, <laughs> or is there a difference? So there's all these types of these types of questions, and so in the early days of the relationship between Canaan and Israel, um, it, it seems like there's this this layer that exists, particularly among um, both the people names, but also the place names, where you have lots of different references to Baal in the, the names. And, and in some ways, it's really unclear. Is it referring to the storm god or, or not? Um, Yigal Levine, for instance, has written a number of, of, of things on this, and I think they're, they're really interesting. But the thing we can say with, with absolute certainty is that in the later Iron Age, um, and as the, the text is, um, let's say, updated or even written at different times, there's clearly an aversion uh, to having the name Baal in a personal name or in a place name. Um, and it's so fascinating to me that, uh, you know, kind of riffing off of what Kyle said, that in uh, Yossi's excavations at Chiafah and at um, and at now Arai, you have two of the best examples of this with Ish- Ishbaal and uh, Jerubal. And both of these guys, if you look in the book of Judges, in the book of, of Second Samuel, uh, they're called not by the name always Ishbaal or Jerubal. Uh, and we want to make sure that we pronounce this correctly, so we can keep our clean rating on iTunes. <laughs> um, it's they're, they're called for Ishbaal Ishbochet, and uh, we have uh, a, a Mephi, uh, We have uh, sometimes Jeruboshet and we also have this with the name of, again from the same time period um, Mephiboshet. Now, his name was not that. And many times when they're reading through Samuel, people say, what kind of name is that? And they're right. He probably wasn't going by that name. His name was Baal. And they've they've simply changed that word, Ba'al, to the word for shame, uh, boshet. Uh, We see this in a number of different things. Uh, Even the god Molech. Um, his name is probably not a Molech, it's either like Malak or Malik, that they took the vowels from Boshet and added it to that um, because of the, the shame that it invoked. And so it's just such an interesting thing. That's why names can take us in many different directions and help us understand not only what the text is saying in its original context, but also how the text was received and even um, shifted over time to, to, make these, uh, to make these types of statements. It's always just so interesting, too, is even though they cover that, you can kind of look behind the scenes. Because, like, if we, if we take the question of um, Ishbaal, we have his name in Chronicles as a son of Saul as Ishbaal, but we know it's the same guy because he's the fourth son of Saul in the book of Samuel, and his name is Ishboshet. Now, if you were to call him Ishbosheth on the street, he wouldn't know who you were talking to uh, because his name is Ishbaal. And so anyway, it's it's just such a fascinating piece of, of all that. And so we're, we're thinking our goal all the time as, as archaeologists is to understand what did this mean in its original context? Our goal as biblical interpreters is much more complicated because we have to know what did this mean in its original context? How was it written? When was it written? And how was it received? How was it understood over those different times? And how was it edited? Uh, so again, this is the type of discovery that's so interesting, uh, and really, um, Kind of a, a big anchor point for, for discussion points moving forward. Anytime anyone delves into Judges chapter six through eight, they'll have to deal with um, to have to deal with this question of the relationship. Um, probably not. It's probably not the same historical person, um, but it's uh, you know the relationship of these these names. So with all that, kind of as a segue, so did Gideon live at Ziklag?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. You 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 jumped right into the uh, the segue. Uh, so yeah, I mean, we have these names in the same thing with people names, and you, the site names can change as well. And it, it's oftentimes you know it's it's about the point that the. The person giving the name wants to convey, and you know, just one other example, to add into people names is is Nabal, Nabal, right? And this is the guy in, in First Samuel that you know basically disrespects David and doesn't do it, and you know, and then he he dies because he's a fool. Well, what does his name mean? It means like fool. Basically, did his parents be like, oh, here's our beautiful That's baby fool, fool. Kid. man. He is he is one jerk fool man. I mean, nobody's gonna name their kid that. I mean. And but so, but can, can I add, like, yeah. one of my favorite songs of all time
1: is "A Boy Named Sue" by by Johnny Cash. I mean, it's so you could look that up. It, 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 it even makes sense in English. Uh, but go ahead, go ahead. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. So you say that the same thing with with place names as well, and you could look at, um, you know, just to go a bit further, afield, the site of I in the Book of Joshua in Hebrew. It's always I, which means the ruin. You know, do is that what people actually call the site? Well, probably not, because you you don't you know. You know, it'd be like saying, hey, where are you from? Oh, I'm from, you know, Manure Town. Nobody lives in a place called Manure Town. It's a terrible name. You wouldn't want to live there. And so nobody's going to live in the ruin. And there's a name that is applied to and describes the nature of the site. And so this is what makes it challenging about Kiribat Arai is that we don't have this good historical... Um, record that brings us back to ancient times to say, well, what is the ancient name of this site? You know, Is it something related to shepherds? Is it something else? You know, We, we just simply don't know. One of the really interesting things that I find is that in the um, 19th century, the Survey of Western Palestine, so this is when the, the British came and they basically surveyed the entire country, and it's this great resource. They came to the site, and, and it was called Kiribat, um uh, or sorry, it was called Horel-Tiri, uh, I'm sorry, I, I metathesized that Tor El khiri There we go. I get it right, which means something like the the um, site of the granaries, so the, the the strong place of the granaries. Where does this name come from? We have absolutely no idea. But the funny thing is that as we've excavated, we have approximately a million silos at the site. And so, is this? Does this name, you know, Tor El khiri connect in some way to a remembered local population name of the nature of the site as some place where grain was stored and the fact that you have all these silos from every layer of our occupation, right? Not just late Bronze Age, which we have some, we have Iron 1, next Iron 1, Iron 2A, 8th century, 7th century. We've got silos from all these different periods there. But again, it doesn't give us a smoking gun as to what the name of the site was. Now, more specifically to your point, it, you know, I would say that we should identify the site with biblical Ziklag, which I know you think is is not correct, but, you know, as we mentioned, it's, it's okay to be wrong. And so, um, did Gideon live at Ziklag? Well... No, but David did for a little while, and you know I I um I would make a case that that um, that our site is a good candidate for Ziklag, and this moves us into the whole discussion of historical geography and how you you do some of the you know, identification of modern sites with ancient sites, and many people will will hear me make this this statement, which my co-directors you know it was, was Yossi's idea originally. And I thought, oh, this is actually really good, and so I delved into it a bit more, and and I, I think that there's a lot to it. Many people say, well, Ziklag we know is in the Negev, according to Joshua 15, therefore your site is way too far north, it simply can't be Ziklag, unless you just don't understand geography. But this gets us into a, a, you know, a number of different layers of, of discussion. So we've already set the context for the significance of this site, kind of geographically, historically, um, from, from a military political perspective, Kribut Arai is a very strategic site. You would want to control it, and it makes sense that somebody would would control it. And nobody's at Laquish. This is the, the next best place to do it. So whoever's in control in the Iron Age 1 probably wants to to station somebody there. So it has that going for it. When we think about the mentions of Ziklag in the biblical text too, aside from that Joshua 15 passage, we have no other statement in that mentions Ziklag that ties it to the Negev. In fact, you know the the narratives we get that mention the site of Ziklag are mostly in First Samuel, where it talks about uh, David using the site of Ziklag as his kind of place uh, where, from which he goes out and he campaigns and, and terrorizes the, the local nomadic population in the service of the Philistine city of Gath, or the, the Philistine king of Gath. And again, geographically speaking, when you look at where Arai is, it's on the border. It's not, you know, it's maybe 20 kilometers from Gath. So not too far, but not too close. It's right between where kind of the Israelites might be and the coast where the Philistines are. But also we know from modern... Archaeological studies, but even also more recent ethnographic studies, that this whole region just west and south of Arai is a massive pasture land where you would have nomads roaming throughout most periods of history. And the the work that's been done by um, Jimmy Harden and Jeff Blakely in particular has really kind of brought this to the fore, particularly the region of Tel Hesse and Kerbet Sumeli, which are just kind of west and southwest of, of Kerbet Arai. And so, you know, again, there's no smoking gun that gives us the... Specific name. I mean, there's no sign that we've discovered y- yet that says, "You know, welcome to Ziklag." Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe next year. I don't know. But um, so we have to pull together, you know, not only the textual evidence, but the geographic evidence, the toponymic evidence—that is, you know, the modern names as well—and try to figure out, okay, what what potential sites are there that we could identify as biblical Ziklag, and does all the data meet? Is there one that we can eliminate for this, that, or the other reason? And I I would make the case that one of the the main sites that people like to identify as Ziklag, which is Tel-A-Sharia, that it, it is lacking a clear destruction level and, again, a in this case we're talking about a burn layer which if you if you go with the biblical text it talks about you know David David made some enemies with some of the nomadic people cuz he kept raiding them and so they kind of the Amalekites come and they come to Ziklag capture all the women and ki- children and go off with them and they burn the city with fire according to 1 Samuel and so you know if if the text Makes this claim that the city or the the site, whatever we call it, was burned with fire. Then it stands to reason that a site that we're trying to identify it, you know, should have some sort of burn layer. Now, there's, you know, no no reason necessarily. There's no ideological reason per se that that this is a made up detail in the text. So when we come to the archaeology, we have to weigh it, weigh it uh, in reality and say, okay. You know, if we want to make this association between site X, Y, or Z with biblical zigzag, or, or you know, and this could be any other case too, does it fit with what the texts are are, are claiming?
1: Yeah, it's it's really interesting, and and I hope we can have a, a more extended discussion on this at some point because we we both will eventually have articles coming out uh, on both sides of this uh, on both sides of this divide. Um, I would just say real briefly here. Um, I have no issue with the idea that there was a historical David and that there was a burn layer at, at, at a Ziklag, um, or that we're talking about, you know, the kind of these historical realities of, of, of David and the Philistines. My my biggest pushback when it comes to the site of uh, Kyberd Arai being um, Ziklag is there's really nothing positive in its favor um, in terms of the um, in terms of the historical geographical evidence, yeah, it maybe fit the profile from a uh, an archaeological perspective. Uh, it could also potentially be in the same general vicinity, um, but like one example, um, Kyle already mentioned, you know, the, the references to the Negev in the book of Joshua, and it's clearly not in the Negev, um, but then the, because uh, it's, you know, uh, two and a half miles from from Lachish, which is the Shvela of the Shvela, I mean, it's the, you know, the central point there. Of course, it is on the western edge, which it's kind of in this area. Is it coast? Is it Shvela? Probably not Negev. That's one. And the other that I, I, uh, I'm I a huge fan of the great uh, 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 geographer Eusebius uh, of Caesarea, and he places Ziklag in Doroma, uh, which, is a, uh, Semit- which is a word that is Semitic and refers to the south, but it's also a region uh that basically begins um the northern edge of what we would call the Negev um and so he knew of a ziglag even though he doesn't unfortunately give us the mileage to it Um, in this area. And so just real briefly here, I've made the suggestion with my colleague, uh, Zach Thomas, who also is a great friend of Kyle. Uh, In fact, I think Kyle was his mentor. So maybe I'm, uh, you know, I'm I'm corrupting him. Uh, um, um, uh, We've made the suggestion that maybe it's an unnamed site in the Bible, but perhaps the one that Josephus, or excuse me, Eusebius gives us, the site of Petor, which he mentions as being on the way to Gaza from Eleutheropolis, the site of, of Baker Green. But we'll, we'll save that discussion uh, for, for later. Um, yeah, and
0: once the articles come out, I would just recommend all of our listeners to just go download them. And if you don't have access, to buy them and then to download them and tell your friends and family about and download them. And so, Sounds just you know, just a little plug good, there. Good, so, good idea. Good and they idea. can make up their own decision then. So.
1: Well, Kyle, I also wanted to talk about some, you know, some of these other questions about specialization at... Kirbert uh, or Rye. How have you guys integrated uh, some of the, the newer techniques um, On site you mentioned that you've discovered uh, uh, This whole cache of flints, which is really interesting particularly if you think about the silos, you know, it could either be maybe uh, a Bunch of agriculturalists in the area or maybe this was the local place to get circumcised. I don't know uh, um, uh, No, probably <laughs> probably agriculture, um, but how do you um, What are some techniques such as uh, paleomagnetism? Um, that you guys ha- have used. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the other aspects of excavations and specialists that that are working at that are working at alongside the the main um, archaeological process? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, sure. What, so I would break it down into a few kind of categories. So, in the first category, there's the kind of chronological types of studies, and that is anchoring what we're finding in the field to a specific time period or you know a calendrical date and so we've got tons and tons of pottery from all of our our layers which gives us a relative date Uh, and again you know for those who know a little bit of archaeology relative dating you know doesn't give you a specific calendar year but it gives you a range of of years and often with pottery you know we're talking a range 150 years maybe on a good day in in the iron age or the bronze age you know 100 years, 75 years. If you're talking Greek, right, the, you know, classicists have it much better because sometimes they can identify specific vessels from a workshop and data to a decade, which, you know, just, is amazing but we can't do with most of the pottery in in the southern levant and so we need other methods then to try and refine that that range of dates and and pin it down and so we've we've collected radiocarbon samples so c14 and this is um you know gives us a specific calendar date for our layers now again, it's still a range of dates, but it's a smaller range. So now we're looking at, let's say, you know, 50 years at 80 percent probability, or you know, 90 years at you know, 100 percent or 99 percent probability. So it's still a game of probabilities, but we're able to narrow it down. And some of the new technology that's coming out, such as uh, kind of paleomagnetism, actually is helping to refine radiocarbon even more because radiocarbon is still tied to uh, dendrochronology which is the study of tree rings and if you don't have a full sequence or a good sequence you can't always match it up you know so well and we also know that the amount of radiocarbon in the atmosphere changes over time and from location to location and so it's not just that you you know find an organic material in an excavation you analyze how much Carbon 14 is in it and it gives you a specific date. I mean, there's a number of variables that come into it that it's it's a fairly complex process, but it does help narrow it down. And so archaeomagnetism or or paleomagnetism is um giving us from, from the initial stages of it it's still a developing field, it's it's giving us a tighter chronological range with which we're working uh, because the the earth's magnetic field is kind of in flux as well and this is generally can be reconstructed through models in the same way that um, you know the locations of stars can be reconstructed through through mathematical uh, equations and things and so we, we can we can have a tighter control over when something is destroyed in particular and so what they do is they'll you know oftentimes work with mud brick and can saw it in half and you can actually analyze the angle at which the ions are oriented because when it's destroyed and refired they're going to realign with magnetic north and it's going to give you a snapshot of what the magnetic field was and then you just figure out the date for it and it gives you a, a tighter range and so we've we've had some samples of uh, uh, burnt mud brick from our 12th slash 11th century building destruction Analyzed uh, and, and and taken, and it fits with you know the pottery in general. Um, we've taken a number of radiocarbon samples, and we're building a sequence from the late Bronze to the early Iron One to the later Iron One to the latest Iron One to the Iron Two A. So we're we're still, and we just we just found. I just got an email today or yesterday actually that said we got some more funding to run more samples. So hopefully we'll have. Additional samples and build an even more robust sequence. So we're doing some of the science To establish the chronological basis the uh, the dating of everything, but we're also Delving into and and again working with some of the natural sciences to ask questions that we haven't always been able to ask in preceding generations, so we actually have um, a kind of physical um, what do I want to call her um, chemist um, kind of uh, soil sciences person who comes and analyzes both uh, we've been collecting organic and inorganic samples and you can learn a whole lot about that. We were doing residue analysis where you basically scrape the insides of vessels and in good instances, it, it will give you what was in there. And, and one of the first samples we took was from a cultic vessel in our, monumental Iron One building, and we have nutmeg. It's the first um, confirmed instance of nutmeg in the Levant, and nutmeg is not native. It's coming from Southeast Asia. So we know that in the Iron Age One, Right, this period that for generations scholars thought, oh, this is the Dark Age, right? The good old days of the palace system in the Late Bronze Age collapses. The Sea Peoples destroy everything. Egypt runs away, and then you know chaos reigns. Well, not to that degree. I mean, certainly there are some major changes happening, but long distance trade is still happening. I mean, Southeast Asia to the Levant is is no mean feat, and it's it's happening there. We know that other um, kind of large Large scale economic processes are taking place as well. You could look at some of the more recent studies coming out of the site of Door on the, the Mediterranean coast further to the north as well. And so, by doing some of these more science based studies, right, you can't, you know, in the past, you wouldn't have been able to, you know, pick up a bowl and say, oh, I see nutmeg or I smell nutmeg. I mean, it's, it's not preserved in that way. We're talking microscopic level. Right there? I mean, even if you lick the pottery, which some people do, right, you're not going to taste the nutmeg and know what it was and be able to assess this question or ask this question. So you know, we're doing this. We're looking at the the chemical composition of the soil to understand better the use of space within a specific building and you know because if you have animals in one room right through their dung and manure you're going to be left with a certain chemical trace in the soil versus if it's you know being used for storage which isn't going to leave you the same imprint left over even after you know three millennia uh, of, of time and so you know we're, we're trying to bring in all the new materials or all the new kinds of analyses we can do we're recording everything with photogrammetry which basically means that we're creating 3d models through photographs of our excavation and then you can go back um, and look at look at it from any any place in the world but also it gives you a snapshot that's going to preserve what was there as precisely as possible and it's you know there's less error that's introduced than the old way of kind of drawing with pencil and drawing a top plan. We're also looking at the pottery and reading it. So it's everything from the old approach of, you know, look at the pottery, look at the macro questions to bring in the new science. Let's try and think about new questions, think about new approaches. Uh, The other day I had a conversation. We're looking at satellite imagery and and, um, through multispectral imaging. And it looks like we might have an ancient road that runs up to the site, um, probably from... Later on, the Byzantine period, there's a small, small settlement down off the main site, um, but you know we'll, we'll go and investigate, investigate that. But we would never have known it because you don't see a road. There's an orchard there. But in antiquity, well, through the soil, through the multispectral imaging, you still see a major feature underground. So we're yeah working with you know, as much as we can to bring everything in and, and look at it from every angle we can think of.
1: Fascinating, uh, really interesting, and just to put some context to that last point you made, which, you know, I, I'm happy to learn about that, because the Byzantine site you mentioned is is called Kirbit Furit, uh, and this is the, definitely, whatever the name of Kirbit or Rai um, was in antiquity, that definitely was the Petor that is mentioned by, uh, by Eusebius. Now, I did want to just make a couple comments on um, some of the fascinating um, areas that you guys are exploring, that many of these are the same things that Uh, we are doing in terms of residue analysis at Tel Borna and and paleomagnetism. Um, So there's, it's great to hear of, of, of nutmeg that we can add. And I would just say that um, in recent years, they found vanilla at uh, Megiddo uh, in a late bronze age context. And this has been found, um, you know, a few other of these, these studies that are out there in various stages of publication. So it's really interesting. Um, I did want to say just something about paleomagnetism that um, and i 'm and i 'm not a paleomagnetist, <laughs> um, but neither neither one of us, we we 're so happy that we get to work with people that are highly specialized in, 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 in interested in the same questions but approaching them in different in different uh, in different ways but the way i understand um, the way I understand it works uh, is that it actually takes a um a, a read that does not a reading of the magnetic field of the earth that does not give you an absolute date but what it does is the, if you find that same reading at another site you can you can basically say let's say i have a destruction at at my site at Tel, at our site telborna and you have a destruction at at uh kibrit and we both have 10th century destructions we we, we both do if we had a, a, paleomagnet, a magnetism test. On that destruction and you have that destruction uh, a test on that same destruction at your site it should show the same magnetic register and then once you do that and you go to other sites uh, across the region it, it helps you essentially anytime you have that destruction at a site you have this magnetic test and you can say okay we don't necessarily know with certainty Um, BC what day this was, but we do know that these sites are all destroyed at the same time because of this magnetic register. And so that um, is really unexpected in terms of uh, a new discovery, and it potentially has major ramifications, particularly for widespread destructions. Uh, the best example of this is the 586 destruction in Jerusalem, where uh, this same procedure was was done. And so now any site that has this 6th century destruction, you can do paleomagnetism to see if it's that same, or is it before or slightly after? Um, and uh, so anyway, that that's really a fascinating um, new development and who knows what other types of new developments um, that are going to be built off of that moving forward. So any any final,
0: uh, go ahead, go ahead. Let let me just add on to that because I mean, you're right. I mean, this is such a, uh, an important thing because before this technology, you know, it was, we were doing this kind of site to site association in a relative way, so to speak, but you had, it was based on the ceramics and specific kinds, you know, some, some vessels, again, are, are around for hundred years, 200 years. And so they're not so meaningful, but something like the lamellic jars, right? These were, these were these kind of big store jars that had their handles impressed with, you know, a, a stamp that said lamellic belonging to the King. And these were understood to, you know, if you found them that they all date to the same time period, and and so you say, oh great, but there's still debate. Well, you know, how long were these in existence? You know, what, were they only produced for 20 years, 30 years, 50 years? And you know, now with radio or the, sorry, the paleomagnetism, it's a it's a far better control for associating. You know, let's say you've got the destruction there. Oh well, you know specifically the same magnetic reading is here. Boom, we can connect these. With far more confidence than we can say, you know a site that has one lamellic impression and another one Even though we would, you know, we could still make a case. It's just not, you know, now it's a lot stronger to do that
1: Yeah, yeah, it's really really so fascinating and and so interesting to to be in the field at this time as things change and you think You know, it's it's the kind of thing that has the potential to be just as revolutionary as ceramic typology I mean we, we're kind of poo-pooing um, our bread and butter pottery, which we both love. Uh, but if you imagine before uh, Albright and Garstang and others sat down and, and really figured out how typology worked, um, as rudimentary as it was at the time, it was just as revolutionary because it enabled them to establish these relative dates moving forward that we're still refining until today. And so the more tools we have in our, uh, in our tool belt, the better when it comes to chronology, and this seems to be one that will um, be has great potential to work alongside um, the relative chronology of, of of ceramics, but also the absolute chronology of C-14 with dendrochronology um, as a kind of a third major tool to to deploy. And the best part about it is it's inexpensive. I mean, it's it's something that is um, done fairly easily in the field um, and, and and doesn't require an enormous amount, and it will only get uh, cheaper over time. So um, very interesting to, to see that. Any any final thoughts, Kyle, about uh, Kirbit Arai and future plans for the project?
0: Um, so the only only additional thing I'll uh, well, uh, two points. So we are currently investigating what is a, a late Iron Age large structure fortress. We're not exactly sure yet. We had a small portion of it from a couple seasons ago, and some more of it is being exposed uh, now. And so it'll be interesting to see what we what we have right there for the later Iron Age, probably at least eighth, seventh, maybe even into the sixth century. It's not clear yet. Uh, so you know, the finds are. I should say, our understanding of the site is continually evolving. And what we, you know, what was once ideal or what was thought to be a single period site has turned out to be basically a mini tell i mean the the some of the layers aren't all that thick but you know it's it's a fairly complex stratigraphy at the site but it's again filling in some great pictures and the the only other thing i'll add is that you know you had made you made a really good comment about the inter um disciplinary nature of archaeology the fact that you know None of us this day can be masters of it of it all and so it's really is a team effort from, you know, people who specialize in the ceramics to those that are specializing in, in the, the soil chemistry to the radiomagnetometry and, and, you know, which is a word I just made up. I don't, radiomagnetometry. It, it's, That's a good it, word. So, That's go. a good it word. It sounds fancy. So, it sounds
1: like you know. a gun. You just, use, you know, immediately you get the paleomagnetism
0: and the C-14 yeah. date. And, yeah. and it gives you a radar reading. to know how fast you're going. so And you get, yeah, 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 go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, you, my, the listeners know what I was trying to say. It's a specialized thing. You We're not cutting it. We're not cutting yeah, it. You no, know, I don't. I don't <laughs> want to be censored. I, you know, I'm. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so it's a team, a team effort, and you know, it's it's so rewarding to to have this this team effort to be able to work with these specialists and to really again think outside the box in a way that you know, you know, our, I mean, archaeology is has always been to a certain degree a a team effort, but you know, previous generations, I think you, you could to a certain degree manage the, the data that was there. But at this point in time, there's just so much, there's no possible way. And then to add the languages to add, you know, this or that or the other on top of it. I mean, there are, there's just so much that we now know and it's growing so fast that, You know, we need collaboration, and it's great to do that, not only within archaeology as a broad field, but then interacting with biblical scholars and ancient Near Eastern scholars, you know, sumerologists, Assyriologists, Egyptologists. I think we're going to really move into a period, and we already have, of this interdisciplinary approach where we're asking new questions, thinking about things in a new way, and really coming to an even better understanding of what was taking place in antiquity.
1: Yeah, that's, that's so true. And the only thing I would add to um, the fact that it is a team effort and we need all of these specialists is we also need you, the listener. We need people that are interested in archaeology to participate. Um, you can be parts of these teams at places like Kiribit Arai, Tel Borna, or other places. Um, the, archaeology doesn't happen without people who are willing to support projects either through uh, funding. Uh, theres uh, Archaeology doesn't exist uh, in, in a capitalistic way. <laughs> it has to be uh, funded by governments or by uh, private donors, and, and it also can't exist without people that actually participate in the excavations. And maybe this is just a good time to, to say, if you are interested in many of the things that we've talked about that have uh, transpired at a site like Kiribit Arai, uh, you can be right there on the front line um, finding these things yourself. You need no experience. All you need is to sign up and and join a project like Kirbet Rai or Tel Brunah or, or, or take your pick. Um, so just if you're one of those people, and I hear, I get this story all the time uh, when I tell people I'm an archaeologist, oh, my daughter loves this, oh, my son loves it, always, always wanted to. Well, do it. There's no time like the present. Um, it's, it's fun. You don't need any experience. Uh, you just need to get on a plane. And come have uh, fun and a lot of work and a lot of camaraderie and in in general, if you got the right people, uh, friends that usually last a lifetime. Uh, so uh, you know that's that's my pitch uh, for for coming to dig.
0: Yeah, and I'll just add one thing. And you know, and you know, I I still remember the day that we found the first part of the inscription. A, a volunteer, uh, an an older volunteer, actually came in and she said, "I think that I have an inscription." I said, "Yes, you do. This is." This is exciting! Exciting for me, I, you know, I've been doing this for a couple of decades. Exciting for her, this was her first dig, and so it doesn't matter if it's your first time there or if you've been doing it for a long time. The excitement of finding something that hasn't been seen for you know a thousand, two thousand, three thousand years is is just you know that's why so many people do this, and that's just one part of the experience.
1: Definitely. It's, it's addictive. Um, yes, it's definitely addictive. Of course, you're talking to two addicts. So, yeah. <laughs> um, we, 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 we thank Kyle for being on and, you know, having this great conversation and we thank you for, for listening. Uh, we'll continue with some discussions about the site in the future, particularly as things continue to develop at the site. And, uh, we just want to thank our listeners one more time and we'll catch you next time.
0: You've been listening to On Scripts Biblical World Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging.